All righty. Um, just cut. Oh, there we go. That's all I needed to do. That's all I needed to do. We have a white screen. There we go. Okay, just because it came up last week, just 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 to get started here. Anybody ever use Febreze in their home? Yeah. Okay, no, you've never used this before in your life. No, what, what we've used is Febreze in our home. It's a little thing, but an amazing number of people, when I, when I show them that there's only one E in the Breeze part of Febreze, they're like, no. Yeah, yeah. It was never written like that. Again, we are talking about misconceptions, basic misconceptions, common misconceptions that people have about Scripture. Stuff that we assume that we know. And last week we talked about tithing. This week we want to talk about at least uh, at least a few cultural depictions uh, of things going on in Scripture. Um, normally we'll pick like a topic each Sunday and, and, and really evaluate this. This this time I thought, you know what? Let's let's just do a little lit review of, of, of things throughout Scripture that people say, oh yeah, I know that story. No, you really don't. Which means that if you've been paying attention to sermons that I've done over the years, most of these you'll say, yeah, I've heard you talk about that before. But, but there's something about hearing them all in one clump. Even as I was prepping this, I'm like, I'm not even having to work hard to figure out what people are doing wrong on these or what we assume wrongly about things. So, true or false, this was Nineveh's sin, that they slapped each other with fish, right? Okay. The reason it's false, that one's an easy one, it's a, it's a gimme. The reason I do this is, um, as much as I love Veggie Tales, my kids love Veggie Tales, and I appreciate that they make a lot of Bible stories accessible to people, and that's, that's great. But we, we actually had kids in youth group that had no clue what actually happened in Nineveh. There was one kid not too awful long ago, I mean like a year ago, that said, I, were they really doing something like slapping each other with fish? Was that like a thing somehow? No. It's a Monty Python sketch that they converted into, as they did so many Monty Python sketches, into Veggie Tales. I'm like, no. <laughs> there was no fish slapping in Nineveh. But they had no idea why Nineveh was in trouble with God. They were utterly clueless. For that matter, I'll be honest with you, there's a, there are several kids in our youth group who have grown up in church. They've spent their whole life in church. They've heard me preach. They've gone through Sunday schools. They've gone through Sunday schools where they've talked about the Bible intensely, who have no clue where the Gospels are. They have no clue where they would look to see anything about Moses. They're utterly clueless about the fact that there are some things that Christians probably shouldn't do. There are things that we've talked about, like, how did you get this far in all of this? without any of this permeating your brain. How did that work? And yet, you can sing all the VeggieTales songs. That is not a failing with VeggieTales. What it is is, because there's nothing wrong with VeggieTales in and of itself, it is a bit of a failing in the church that somehow we are making the Bible so accessible that people don't feel like they actually have to ever open their Bibles. That's, that's when we've done something wrong. Okay. I want to take a note from the iconoclasts. Do you remember from church history, who were the iconoclasts? What, were, what was iconoclasm about? Anybody? Okay. These are people who argue all images of God are inherently problematic, right? They're inaccurate. Can you, can you do an accurate depiction of God? No. They are limited and limiting by definition. If you try to depict the Trinity, do you depict it as three separate things, three glommed on things, so it's all just one? How do you do that? Do you pick which part of that? You, how, do you, how do you depict the Holy Spirit? How do you depict God the Father? Is he Zeus sitting on a throne? How do you, how do, you do that? Do you say, okay, then I'll just depict Jesus? Yes? I watched the Shack last night. Uh, Did you? Black woman. And Jesus yep. was, man, looking very uh, Jewish with a beard. And the Holy Spirit was uh, young, good looking woman. Well, that's not inaccurate, limited or limiting, or often being worshipped in its own right as if this were even more accessible than the Bible, right? By definition, the iconoclast said, the moment you do this, the moment you do this, 
you've limited people's mental picture. Even if you, in that movie, they're consciously, and in the book, they're consciously trying to expand people's mental picture of God. Because God was multiple religions. Yeah. And so God is three separate individuals, never there at the same time, right? As, as the real God is, right? There is no way to depict God in such a way that you don't limit him. It is limited and limiting in people's mindsets. I get it. And as a result, when you try to do this, there are a lot of people who say, now that I can relate to. The Bible, not so much, but that I can relate to. There's the danger of people saying, oh, this icon doesn't point me back to God. I'm praying to the icon. I'm, I'm kissing the icon of St. Vladimir. I'm praying at the statue of Mary's feet. It's, it's like, okay, this isn't pointing you back to God anymore. Now, the icon itself, the depiction, is drawing your attention. So, at least pull this from the iconoclast. The depictions are tricky. Anytime you do this, the very simplicity that draws people to what you're trying to draw them to itself can oversimplify, flat out change things. Like, Mo and the big exit, instead of talking about Moses, and the ballad of little Joe, instead of talking about Joseph, kids go, oh, well, westerns I can understand. I get that. Okay, but it, it wasn't a western. At Jericho, they didn't throw slushies at people. I mean, there's, there's simple things that you say, I, I'm afraid that you might be missing the original point. Now, it's not a huge deal, cosmologically speaking, when filmmakers take a 508-page Ben-Hur book and turn it into an 80-minute cartoon. I think it does damage to that story, but take that hairy deal. Even if it's a good story, even if it draws people to the Lord, whatever. But when people become more familiar with the depiction than they are with Scripture, when people say, well, that is Scripture, it, 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 it is as good as this. This is, this is how I see this. Um, or to date myself, uh, years ago when, when uh, This Present Darkness came out uh, about spiritual warfare and angels, I read it and I said, actually, this is really refreshing. Somebody actually has angels being tough. They, they have, they have a, an interesting depiction of spiritual warfare. I can appreciate this. An amazing number of my friends could quote from that book <coughs> that could never quote the spiritual warfare passages from Scripture. And they're like, yeah, this is the way it is. No, this is a fiction book trying to present a depiction of how this is. So when I say cultural depictions, I'm talking about movies, television, sculpture, paintings, books, myths, urban myths, anything that, that people wrap their heads around thinking, ah, this helps me understand the Bible, that may actually be damaging their perspective how they understand the Bible. Alright? Okay. So this goes through chronologically, alright? Oh, and let me, before I, a little word of warning. <coughs> Some of these inaccuracies may not seem like a big deal, right? So what? You didn't remember this one quite right. So what? You got the name wrong. So what? You, that's not exactly. But how important is it, do you think, just in general, how important is it that our commitment is to the capital T truth of God as opposed to our commitment to stories that ring true to us? I mean, you remember when we talked about um, church history and we talked about George and the Dragon? Remember the story of George and the Dragon, St. George and his plate mail from apparently the 14th century um, grappling with a dragon in the Middle East? And he becomes the patron saint of England. You know. Okay, there was an actual guy, Georg. And if you remember, Georg, do you, do you remember anything about him? How many of you have ever heard the story of George and the Dragon? Or ever heard that there's a story about George and the Dragon? This British knight fighting a dragon. Okay, famous in, in Britain. How many of you, if somebody asked about Georg, could tell his story? Georg, if you remember, was the captain of the Imperial Guard. In, in the Byzantine Empire, before it became Christian, he was the captain of the, uh, of the guard. He was the, the top guy, and he was a Christian. And the emperor said, you have to renounce your Christianity. Not a Christian kingdom, and you're getting a little overt about it. You need to renounce it. And he said, no. And the, and the, and the, and the, the emperor said, you don't understand, Gary. I love you. You're my best guard. You've trained my guards. You're like the top soldier. You're the cool, you're Captain America. You are the coolest guy. People are listening to you. 
You can't do this. You're undermining the imperial cult. You have to renounce. And he said, no, I can't. In fact, people are listening. I said, yeah. Okay, so he started evangelizing to all the other guards. He started going in the streets and telling people, I'm Captain America and I'm telling you about Jesus. The emperor said, okay, if you'll just shut up, I'll, I'll, I'll give you land. I'll give you a fortune. You can retire early. You have to stop. I'll give you everything you ever wanted. You don't even have to run it. Just shut up. You just shut up. And he said, I'm not going to do that. And so the emperor had him publicly executed by the other guards. He was strapped to a wheel and tortured to death. It took him quite a while to die. And the entire time, he preached Christ. And dozens of the guards came to know the Lord. Because Georg wouldn't stop talking. By the way, there's this really cool story about George and the Dragon. Where's Plate Man? Because apparently George, even though he's supposed to be from the early hundreds, is from the 14th century. And he fights this dragon and he becomes the patron saint of England. It's a really cool story. Does he have a really cool shield? That special No, he has a really cool shield, but it has St. George's Cross on it. Oh. Go figure! I thought it had a star on it. But here's the and thing. You said Captain America, so now yeah. I have a, a, a picture in my yeah. head of what, that, of what he looks like. My point being, what we do is we get so stuck on the cultural depiction that rings true to us that we miss a truth of a human being who lived and died for Jesus Christ. And we focus on the depiction. How important is it as we go through scripture that we remind ourselves these aren't just stories that ring true. They are history that is true. Oh, let's do this chronologically. Adam and Eve. So, Eve was tempted by the serpent to eat the apple, and then went and tempted Adam herself, right? Because that's the story. Tell me the truth. Isn't that the story that people have talked about? Ever hear that? Adam and Eve, Eve was tempted by the Satan, by, by Satan to eat the apple, went and tempted Adam, all that kind of stuff. Do me a favor. Somebody read, you'll have to see, we're kind of break this up so we don't have to read all of the verses. But somebody read Genesis 2, 9. Uh, somebody else maybe read 16 through 17 there. And then somebody else read the first six verses of chapter 3 of Genesis. It's a sword drill. We're going to be reading verses today. So, somebody read verse uh, 2, 9. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees growing out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good. Verses 16 and 17. <clears throat> Nobody else got that. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are to you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Somebody read the first six verses of chapter three. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. What did Satan say here? Oh, sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. So what did Satan say here? You will not show with her. Okay, Satan said nothing here. Does this ever oh, say that Satan's talking? Okay, now it's not a big deal, because I genuinely think you can make the argument retroactively that this is Satan speaking to the serpent. Because of other things we see in Scripture. In the story, what does Satan say? I think that you can make a case that it's Satan. But the story doesn't say that. But we, we know the story, so we can read that into it. Alright, more to the point. It probably wasn't an apple that they're eating, right? Does it say apple in there? So why do we say apple? Because we talked about this. We did talk about this. Two things. Number one, it was an evil fruit, right? That's the way, no, culture, that's the way it's depicted. It's evil, because she ate it, and look what happened. Evil fruit, and the Latin word malum, 
evil, looks a lot like the Latinized Greek word malum, doesn't it? Which is the Latin version of the Greek word melon, meaning apple. By the way, this is where we get the English word melon. Which, which, when we talk, the Greek word for for a melon is a gourd apple. So anyway, so yeah, so there are people who are like, oh, this is malum malum. It's a malum malum. It's an evil apple. But more than one, that's why the the disguised evil queen gave her a poisoned apple. This this European mindset because you go, yeah, apple apple, evil 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 apple apple evil. Beyond that, the only English word for fruit, if you're going to talk about fruit at all, is apple. <coughs> all fruit is just apple. That's that's what, that's what the word is. So, as English-speaking people are talking about the fruit that she ate, they talked about the apple. By the time it got into to Middle English and into Modern English, everybody was like, yeah, she ate an apple. I don't need to read the Bible. I know that she ate an apple. Everybody knows she ate an apple. It wasn't probably an apple. That's why the English idiom for that laryngeal prominence is an Adam's apple because of the old wives' tale that that chunk of apple got stuck in Adam's throat. Have been dealing with that ever since, which is goofy, right? And I mean, it was bad enough that Eve ate the apple, but then she took it to Adam, and that's where it got stuck, right? Except Adam was standing right there with Eve, right? Isn't that what the Bible says? Yes. And yet, how often have you heard Eve was deceived by the serpent? Period. And then she gave some to her husband. Adam, at some point, you go, he was standing right there! If anything, even if you want to argue that she was deceived, if anything, Adam was deceived, he was really stupid. Or, or even worse, he's just like, well, I can just blame it on the woman, right? I mean, she was deceived, I just ate the, I just ate the apple. That's what he said. What kind of applications can we build from this? Just, just from this so far. about how people read this and about how we should read this. In general, in general, do you get the people do you get the impression that people quoting Bible stories know these Bible stories? In general, do people know these Bible stories? <laughs> in general, people know them in general. But an amazing number of people have no clue. An amazing number of people have never really read these. They've heard about them. They've maybe even seen a flannel graph thing of these, but they've never read the stories themselves. But Adam and Eve were thrown out of, I can't actually use this picture, them being thrown out of Eden by a really nice-looking girl. No, 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 I can't do that one. That's just woefully inaccurate. i got to take something where it at least looks a little scary. Okay, Adam and Eve thrown out of Eden as punishment for this sin, right? Weren't they cast out of Eden for doing this? For completely disobeying God, yes? No. Not even remotely. Somebody read Genesis 3, 12 through 19. Okay. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife, and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your 
ship moves until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are. So what was their punishment for their sin? Summarize it. Uh, the curses. Uh, woman would increase her pain in childbearing, and her husband would rule over her, and Adam, the ground would be cursed, and it would be painful to toil all of his life, and then they both die. Yeah. Life gets stinky, and then you die. Thank you. That's, that's your punishment, right? How's their sin already started affecting their relationship as husband and wife? Yeah, she gave it to me. This this woman that you gave me. So it's kind of your fault, God. You threw her under the bus and blamed God for it. What else? What else do we see about their relationship? Even in the curses. Well, it says the man will be over the way. Your desire is going to be here, and there's a, there's a bunch of discussion as to what that is. That part of it's actually trying to get at. But at least you get this idea of you go this 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 beautiful connection that you guys have is already starting to crumble. You're going to desire him, whatever you want to go with that, and he's going to lord it over you. You're going to hurt by bearing children, and it's going to be a pain for him to work. You guys, in order to eat, it'll have to be painful and difficult, and then you'll die. All that because you sinned, right? Now somebody read verses 22 through 24. Anybody? And the Lord God said, Man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life, and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed the east side of the garden of Eden, cherubim and a flaming sword, flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So why were they cast out of Eden? So they can't reach the tree. Yeah. Say it again? Okay. Megan had an interesting point there. Okay. They weren't cast out of Eden as punishment. Right? Their punishment we've already discussed. They weren't cast out of Eden for punishment. They were cast out of Eden so that they couldn't eat from the tree of life and be immoral. Now, there are some people that, that say, well, this is just plain mean, or this is just a myth. Uh, clearly, oh, there's a magic tree about good and evil. And, you know, you've heard me say this before. What if there was nothing special about that fruit? It's just, I give you one rule. Don't eat of that fruit. The moment you eat of that fruit, you'll understand what sin is. You'll understand what choosing evil is. Don't do it. What if that were all that it were? But the point is, is you go, that's, they, were, they were punished for that sin, but they were cast out so they wouldn't eat from the tree of life. There are some people who say, oh, that sounds like a Greek myth. There are other people who say, it sounds like a Norse myth. There are other people who say, well, this is obviously God being mean because he doesn't want them to be immortal. The other way of looking at it is actually what Megan just said here. They were cast out so that their punishment was finite. It didn't go on forever. Even if they lived for 800 years, you go, then your punishment's 800 years. And then you die. And then it's over. And you're with me. Punished finitely. What do you miss? What do you miss? What theology do you miss? If you say, Yep, and then they were cast out for their sin. Let's stop. The Bible says. And you just made something oversimplified that has some serious depth and some serious application. Maybe you say, I, I really don't think that's why he cast her out. Okay. Why did he? The why becomes so crucial here. And we miss all of that when we collapse it into a simplified planograph story that everybody already knows. Eve ate the apple. And she went and took it to, to Adam, and he didn't know because you just gave it to him, and he's dumb. And God said, That's it. You're everybody out of the pool. You have to leave Eve out of the store. Was it an apple? Eve was deceived? Yes. Adam may or may not have been deceived, but he knew what was going on, and he ate the apple because he was standing right there with her at the time. None of this was throwing him, and he blamed her. They were punished with something and then cast out so that 
They didn't eat of the tree of life, whatever you want to go with that. Personally, personally, my, my thought is, because he's like, this doesn't go on forever. But death enters in. The whole point of this is like, you do realize you're going to die now. It will be death. Death is always the culmination of sin. It's where it always goes. Yeah, they're clothed now with the skins of animals that had been alive. Yeah. If they were supposed to be stewards of the animals, and God says, all right, I'll kill an animal and wrap you in its skin, because now you're ashamed of your nakedness. Fine. Something died because you felt like doing something other than what I, I, I told you to do. There's a repercussion to this. And ultimately, you'll die as a repercussion for this. <coughs> Noah! That's a good one. Move on chronologically. If you ask most people, even most church-going Christians, they'd say, Noah collected two of every animal for the ark, because there's a 40-day, 40-night flood. Yes? Now I'm going to ask that again. If I were to ask most people, even most church-going Christians, they'd say, Noah collected two of every animal for the ark, because there's this 40-day, 40-night flood. Well, do me a favor. Read Genesis 6, 11 through 14, and then somebody read 17 through 21. Somebody read Genesis 6, 11 through 14, and then somebody read 20, 17 through 21. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all the people, for the earth, earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. 17 through 21. <coughs> I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. I will establish my covenant with you and will enter the ark and you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you and be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store them away as food for you and for them. So those people would be right, right? Two of every kind. Yes. Every kind of animal that creeps on the ground and stuff, and anything that won't like the water that it puts in. Um, so they're correct, yes? Oh, but you can't expect people to read more than like a verse or three, right? I mean, it's not like you read an entire Bible book at one sitting. Nobody can do that. I mean, you could read Tom Clancy, but you can't read the entire book of Genesis in one sitting. No one can follow that. Alright, so Christy says we need to read Genesis 7, 1 through 5. Somebody read Genesis 7, 1 through 5. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, and you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. So it's two of every animal, but seven of every clean animal, right? Fourteen. Fourteen. Amazing number of people go, oh, it's seven. Seven of the clean animals. Seven pairs of the clean animals. Fourteen. Oh, did you, what, is it? Tell me out here. What's the difference between a king and a king? There's whole chunks of the Old Testament that explain that. But it, later on. Later on, but clearly there's at least... Clearly this has been something that God has already talked about to one degree or another, which suggests that later on, if that's the case, if, if Noah actually knew what God would mean by clean and unclean animals, then when God is giving his commandments later about clean and unclean animals... Well, that's, that's not news, is it? That's, that's codification. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's news. This is something that, that apparently they would have already known. But does this contradict the story in chapter 6? Why or why not? You can't just say yes or no. Why or why not? Because it's 
say two of every kind of animal and what was he also supposed to store away? Food. Food. Food to live on. Anything you need to live on with that. You go, oh. So seven pairs of clean animals that you can sacrifice and eat and things. That's, that's part of it, right? There's nothing going on in seven that contradicts six. It's just explaining it more. It's just padding it out. Somebody read verses eight to ten then of chapter seven. Bears of clean and unclean animals, <coughs> of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded. <coughs> and after the seven days, the flood waters came upon the earth. So now it sounds like God brought the animals, not he did everything and collected. Which again doesn't actually contradict chapter 6, does it? Because in chapter 6 he even said, they'll, they'll come to you, right? So he didn't collect them. They just he just received them and put them in the ark. They just they just arose, right? <laughs> the animals just came from all over the place. Noah was busy building the ark. He, angels didn't help him build the ark. He built the ark with the sons and stuff. I mean, they did this, but they didn't have to collect the animals. What applications can you make from that? From actually reading what's actually going on here? Anything? God guides, God provides. Yep. So, you don't even have to do anything. You don't even have to do any planning. Well, no. No. Noah actually had to build the ark. Right. took a while. And people make fun of him the entire time, right? We have no, absolutely no comments in scripture about how anybody reacted to him building the ark. My assumption is that they think he's nuts. <laughs> but we're never told that. Anything else? Oh, man, here. How long have the slower animals been making their way to the ark at God's command? I mean, sure, the the uh, the gazelle happened to be nearby and this came over that afternoon. What about the slug? How long had that thing been working its way over there? What, what about what about the turtle? Maybe there's a nearby turtle. I don't know. I mean, seriously, how long have the slower animals been making their way to the ark before? before God ever even told Noah anything. How long has God been working on things in your life long before you ever even knew that there were things going on in your life? Is that worth thinking about? It wasn't the announcement that you know, I've had enough like a long time with the actual plan? Well, enough time for him to build an ark. Yeah. yeah. But he's like, I they're going to come to me? Yeah, they'll all arrive in time for you to put them in the ark. They all seem to have, I mean, given the timeline he's given here about, you know, and then this week, and then they all came, and then you put them in. It's like, they all seem to have arrived at pretty much the same time. So God is having different animals leaving at different times to arrive at the ark at pretty much the same moment. How long has God been working on this stuff in your life for things to come together when they actually need to? Which doesn't mean, oh, everything's always going to work fine. It's not my point. My point is the times that you find yourself going, well, uh, it's done, and I don't see, oh, there they are. It's like, all the stuff that we tend to freak out about, has God already been working on that? Exactly, Kazuna. So the flood lasted 40 days and 40 nights. Yes? Ah, somebody read verses 10, or 11 through 12, please. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second, second month, Seventeenth day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. Okay, so that's how long it rained. It rained for forty days and forty nights. Was it just rain? So you get three, at least three sources of water. What are they? Springs, floodgates. How are the floodgates of heaven different than the, than the rain? I don't know. But it's listed as something different. I don't know. I mean, we know it had never rained before. So, 
things were things different you know, back then? Were, were there large chunks of water floating? So I don't know. Sing, open up the floodgates of heaven in worship songs? What does that mean? Exactly. We say, oh, it's just a poetic way of saying rain. You go, it rained and it rained and springs came forth. Why did you? I'm sure I'm going to be distracted the next time we see that song. In the very beginning, like it says that there no, was totally going to be waters above and waters what? below that were separated by yep. the sky. Yep. So there was some kind of water layer. I guess. Clouds aren't exactly that. No, they're water vapor. It's not just clouds going that. There's something, and we don't know what it is. I've heard all sorts of people. I don't know. No, you don't. Something funky. I don't know. But then read verses 18 through 24. Oh, somebody different, maybe. Or not. Finite people, finite amount people with voices. Yes. <coughs> A tiny percentage of reds. So stop. Okay. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to the depth of more than 20 feet. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him went beyond. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. And the ducks ruled the planet. That's right. Because they can swim. Anyway, so how long was the flood? Or they can float. So, anyway, so how long was the flood? So it's interesting. I mean, this this went on for a while. So was this just a localized phenomenon? People go, well, the Tigris Euphrates Valley is going. Well, they frequently flood it. Was there anything in there to suggest that this is more than just a localized thingy? Twenty feet of water over the tallest mountains. Everything died. Everything. Everything. Everything died. Everything. Everything died. Now read verses thirteen through seventeen. Oh, please. So, like, you know, we're talking about oversimplification and everything. In flannel graphs, you know, it's always the ant. Like, you think, oh, it gathered the animals and all the animals, everything died. Yeah, animals. But, I mean, not until I was an adult did I realize. I mean, did I fully consciously understand or it was brought to my attention even that, I mean, that humans, humans died? Like, there are real people standing outside that are trying to get in or trying to, or, or not, or, or something like, and they're dying, like, I mean, that was it was a lot harder to take than, oh, the animals, you know, like, the animals went in the ark, everything flooded, and that was the end of that. Like, and that is one thing I will throw toward the movie um, that came out not too often ago, is yeah. just, if you can imagine how psychologically hard that would be to be inside the ark going, we'll survive, and hear people outside the ark and go, and they're all going to die. That's going to mess with you. Somebody read verses 13 through 17. So how long did Noah and his family actually stay in the ark? A year. Yeah, it was over a year. Think about that. Well, they started this. They went in the second month of this, the 600th year, and came out the second month of the next year. It's like, yeah. They've been in there a year. People bought it a whole month in the ark. It's like, no, over a year in the ark. Then we had that whole, you know, birds sending out. One came back with the 
branch, and then the next one didn't come back up. All that happened. It's a whole year that they were in the ark. Why is that worth knowing? Why is that important? Or is it? Yeah. Well, it also speaks to the whole, is this worldwide or localized? Like, what local flood takes a year to dry out? Yeah. Or even a half a year. You go, no, it's technically a half year. It starts fine. It took six months for that stuff to actually start drying off at all. And several months for them to go, oh, there must be land somewhere. Everest. Oh, yeah. But we're nowhere near Everest. We're over here on near Ararat. I don't know. It matters. And God provided for them for a year. That's <coughs> significant. Joseph. Because. Really? Yeah. Possibly the most culturally He's sensitive. Because Clay Aiken no, is Donnie Joseph. No, is Joseph. This is Clay Aiken. He's. That just hurts my heart. Well, it's supposed to. Um, Clay Aiken, clearly the most culturally sensitive. Joseph had a coat of many colors, right? Technicolor, green coat, whatever you want to call it. That much, at least, we know. Yes? No? Somebody read Genesis 37.3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. He made him a robe of many colors. <laughs> oh, then he did. It's a robe, not a coat. What's the difference? Well, actually, it's a tunic in, in, in Scripture. But yeah, it's a robe, it's a coat. It's got many colors, Yes. The Bible describes this coat, or tunic, which is technically, as pak. A word that means having to do with the hands. Mine says mm -hmm. Mine says ornate. Uh -huh. but, then, but then when you go down to... I just want to double check that. That's the, when you check the citation at the bottom, the footnote says the meaning for the Hebrew word is uncertain. Kind of where I'm going with this. Pock. Gave him a pock coat. Pock robe. Pock tunic. You go, what? I handed something to do with the hands. I'm not sure what that means. Could have made, could have been handmade. They're all handmade at this time. Mm -hmm. But it could have been something where you go, they worked really hard with their hands on this. This was carefully crafted. That's possible. More likely, it's a tunic that went all the way down to the wrist. Fancy coat, fancy robe that went all the way down to the wrist. To the hand part. I.e., a fancy tunic that no laborer like Joseph's brothers would have ever worn. They had short sleeves or sleeveless tunics. It's kind of like, um, okay, in the, like the 1600s, 1700s, why did courtiers in, in the court of kings wear silk and powder their faces? It's more than just to be fancy. Why did they wear silk and powder their faces? What was the point of that? To distinguish them from the commoners. I'm wearing a suit that, if I move too fast, falls apart. I'm wearing a suit that, you know, there's no way I could do work in this. And look at my face. I'm pale. I have never seen the sun. I have never done a day's work out in the sun. The whole point of that, especially if you go back and read it, why did they rub almond paste on their face? Why did they, they powder their face? And you go, the whole point is to look not like those grubby, dirty laborers. The whole point was, yes, to wear something expensive that nobody could wear, but even more to the point, why, why dainty fabrics? Why lacy things? Why flimsy things? Because nobody who labors for a living could ever do that. Now, this actually does give a little bit of credence to the people who go, ah, you never worked a day in your life. You want to go, oh, come on, save me the, the, the working class stuff where you go, oh, you're, you're, you're some kind of scholar, therefore you've never really worked. I'm like, well, there, there's historical precedent for that, actually. And you can make an argument that the point of the coat here is that the father said, oh, this is for somebody who, who's far too important to work. It's not just, look, he gave him a coat of many colors. By the way, it never says anything about colors, ever in the story about the coat having colors in it. Or even technically ornamentation, which is what like the NIV says, it's an ornate coat. 
And you go, yeah, no, there's nothing in there about that. It's a pocket code. It's a handy code. I don't know what that means. But, but here's the thing is even not just that he got a special code that looks pretty, Dad must love him best, but every time they see him, every time they see the code, they're reminded, oh, he'll never work in the fields like us. He's far too special for him. What do we lose if we say code of many colors? And we don't, we don't realize, oh, it's, it's more than just that. It glosses. Yeah. It glosses. And, and you understand why every single time they see Joseph in his tunic, in his robe, they're like, just grinding it in. And then, of course, Joseph, being the sensitive brother, comes and says, I keep having dreams where all of you guys bow to me. It's cool, isn't it? Don't you love this as much as I do? Just go read a book or something. Yeah. I had another dream where you guys bowed down to me again. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. Can we just kill him? I mean, there is a progression here in their relationship. No, no, we can make money off. Even the NAS, one of my favorite translations, this incredibly literal translation, translates it varicolored, multicolored. Why? There's nothing about colors at all in it. Yes? Um, what does the LXX put in there in green? That's a good question. I don't know what the Septuagint does. It might be based on the fact that they translate That is possible. Well, that is a good question. I was gonna, similar to Michael, I was going to ask, how did we get started on calling it multicolored? Because it was special. It was... Beautiful. I, I, to be honest, I'm not exactly sure. But I mean, like you said, like we know where the apple kind of came from. Even that is, is trying to figure it out. Right. You know, but, yep. I'll look it up in the, in, the, in the Septuagint. That's a good question. But ask a rabbi, they never refer to it as multicolored. And here, aside, it says a full, full length tunic. Yep, full length tunic, which it might be full to the ground, it might be full to the end of the wrist. Does it matter that otherwise really good Bible translation bows to cultural misconceptions in this? Because this is the story that everybody knows. It matters. What about the name James? Well, that's... I, okay, let's talk about that when we get to the New Testament, though. That's a good question. Moses! Well... Peter is never in the New Testament. Jesus is never in the New Testament. I mean, there's a lot. Yeah, let's move back. Okay, Moses. Um, Prince of Egypt. Didn't know he was a Jew until he was an adult, though, right? Yeah, that's pretty much all false. Somebody read Exodus 2, verses 1 to 2. Anybody? Okay. Any, now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Okay. Because the Pharaoh had made rules that um, that he's, he's going to get rid of all the all the Hebrew children. Technically speaking, Jews are people from the tribe of Judah. Moses from the tribe of Levi. Right? Isn't that what that says? So, Moses is an Israelite, i.e., from the people that came from Israel, came from Jacob, from the people of God of that group. And he's a Hebrew, which is what the Egyptians called all the Canaanite people that came in and have wandered in. They call them the Habiru, or the wanderers. So he's a Hebrew. But he's not a Jew, he's a Levite. To most of us, we think of, uh, I don't care, why would you bring that up? Or we, or we might go, oh, what are you saying? It has nothing to do with Judaism. No, 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 no. I'm just saying, use the words right. He's an Israelite. He's a Hebrew. Technically not a Jew. Well, but when, I mean, somebody from the tribe of Judah, I mean, the Levites are distinguished among the tribe. Not distinguished in the royalty, but I mean, like, distinguished, like, they're separated from the rest of the tribe. Yeah, they're separated even from the other tribes, even yeah. more so. But there's 11 tribes that aren't Jews. But anyway, um, somebody read verses 3 through 10, then. 
when she could hide him no longer, she got a paperless basket for him and coated it with tar and ash. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. Then the child grew older. She took, when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Okay. So we're never told he was named any kind of a prince, right? We're never given any Egyptian title for him. So the idea, oh, I grew up a prince among you. No. He grew up in Pharaoh's household after he was weaned, right? And he was raised as Pharaoh's daughter's own son, but in the socio-political structure of Egypt, that, that didn't mean he was like in, in the line of succession to be Pharaoh. It didn't mean he was even necessarily a prince. He was just raised as a son. There's a lot of quasi-adoption going around in those days and things. Maybe he was, but we don't know that. And the Bible never says that. But we like to go, oh, look at what he gave up! And just like, what? I don't know what he gave up. Plus, read 11 through 12. Okay, we don't have any reason to believe he didn't know exactly what his heritage was, right? Is there anything in scripture to suggest he didn't know he was a Hebrew? No. Uh, and I love in the Ten, uh, don't get me wrong, I love the Ten Commandments. I, I love them, the Ten Commandments. Could be. But it's not like, and his uh, poor John Derrick is strapped up there and Vincent Price is just going to town and he goes, no, he just sees a slave driver beating a Hebrew and says, I can't take it anymore. These are my people. And so he kills a guy. There's no reason to say, I didn't even know Hebrew. I didn't know any of this. I mean, it makes dramatic tension. We love that in Ten Commandments. We love that in, in Prince of Egypt. It's not in the Bible. But it's okay because it rings true to us, right? Who cares if it is true? Remember, he was raised in his mother's Hebrew household for, what, two to four years? Till he was weaned, however long that was? Why wouldn't he have known? Is there any reason why he wouldn't have known? But he was cast into the wilderness by Pharaoh because of, he was a Jew, right? Why was he cast into the wilderness? Okay, we have two different two different votes here. Let's read what the Bible says. Exodus 2, 13 through 15. Why was he cast into the wilderness by Pharaoh? So let me read 13 through 15. He wasn't casting. <laughs> I'm changing my vote. The next day, he went out and saw two <laughs> Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrews? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When the, uh, oh, 15. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the Pharaoh and went to where he sat down by a wife. Okay, so why did Moses leave Egypt? Was he cast out by Pharaoh? I mean, he's been running from him. But there's this great scene, may the name of Moses be struck. You know, he's got the, he's got the pole and stuff. There's a great scene about him being cast out. Most people have Watch that scene. They remember that scene, and that scene never happened. In fact, I think it's interesting. In the verses that Randy just read, that's the only place where we're ever given any idea about what anybody thought about Moses' leadership as somebody growing up in Pharaoh's household. Which is the Hebrews going, nobody put you over us. 
ironically, the only thing that ever said anything about how much authority did he have is people going, you don't have any authority over me, prince of Egypt. Apparently not. He left because he was running. Left because he was scared. Why do we feel a need to heroize Moses? The movies do it, but why do they? Yeah. Well, because we want to make him look like a strong character when he really wasn't. He was very human. He was scared. He didn't know how to speak. And so God used some, some ordinary person to be there. Yeah, which we struggle with. Why? Why do we say, no, if he's a great leader, he must have been a great, um, just a great man, a great American. Why? Because, because we're ordinary people. Only extraordinary people do extraordinary things. <coughs> Ordinary people like us, well, we're not, we're not really expected to, right? Can't, can't, I couldn't be Moses. I'm not this great speaker. I mean, Charles Nesta has that awesome voice. He wasn't a great speaker. Aaron did most of the speaking to begin with. But he did have horns, right? We can at least agree with that. He had horns. Everybody knows this, yes? Can you can you can you see the horns in all of these? You see the horns, right? Throughout history, Moses is commonly depicted as having horns. You know that, right? Everybody knows he has horns. So somebody read Exodus thirty four twenty nine. We're going to end with this particular funness. Thirty four twenty nine. Whoever gets there first. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. All right. The Vulgate Bible, the Latin Bible, translates this in words that probably stop it. In, in words that are probably not that familiar, but it used the Latin word cornuta, meaning horned. That's the way Jerome wanted to describe the Hebrew word karan, meaning to radiate out. It's, it's coming out from his. How do you say that? I mean, this in the year in the years before flashlights and lasers and stuff. How do you say stuff was coming out of his head, coming out of his face? It was. It was like he was. You could say it's like he was crowned with light. In which case, everybody goes, "Oh, okay," and do lots of pictures of him with a natural golden crown on his head, which a lot of times people did. Or you say he's. It's like. It's like horns of glory coming out of his, out of his head, which is why the Dewey Rhymes Bible in 1609 translated into English saying, "When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he held the two tablets or two tables of the testimony, and he knew that he knew not that his face was horned from the conversation of the Lord." That's that's the way they did it, and that mental image stuck with people, even after later translations went, "Well, okay, horned is probably not." Even King James didn't say horned. King James came along and well, that's probably saying that. And yet, for generations, he's got horns. I actually read a rabbi saying, actually, no, we think that's not a bad translation, because horns are always symbolic of strength and, and majesty in scripture, and so it's just saying that he had strength and majesty. But the Hebrew doesn't necessarily say horn, that's what the Latin was saying. It's technically, Quran can mean horn in Hebrew, but contextually, clearly not. It's talking about radiating God's glory off of her. But the rabbi's like, yeah, but I, like, I still like the mental image because it means strength, like a bull. If that's the case, of strength and bull, and that, why do we often depict the devil's heavenly Because, you know, let's talk about that. We're going to spend a whole Sunday on, on how we depict the devil. But why do we depict the devil as having horns? That's a good question. Not because of this. Anyway. But the idea of going, oh, I like the mistranslation of horns because it attributes more strength and heroism and glory to Moses himself. You know, that alone as an argument is enough for me to say horned is a bad translation. Because the whole point is that it was God's glory coming off of him. So almost today, almost nobody today thinks he has horns. So why even go into this? Why, even, why is it even worth talking about? Nobody thinks he has horns. 
But they used to. They knew the story. They spent months chiseling statues, Michelangelo's statue, where he's got horns. They spent months painting pictures, spent months chiseling statues, because everybody knows the story. You don't need to read the Bible. You know the story. Right? So what kinds of cultural depictions of things have formed the basis of your personal theology without you even knowing it? What have you missed because you knew the story? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to have a Bible. Live in a country where it's so easy for us to get a Bible. We can get free Bibles. Thank you, Lord. Help us to read them. Help us to actually invest in reading our Bibles ourselves and knowing truth, knowing history ourselves. Be glorified, Lord, with our desire to know you well. In Jesus' name.